Well, with that, it leaves me with uh, uh, nothing more to do at this time than to introduce a man um, who I've got to know personally. And um, those of you that know me, I'm quite a judgmental person. And uh, um, I, I, base, I, base my, uh, I base my judgment on people, on what they do, not what they say they do. And I've, I've been blessed to watch this man in action. And... Um, um, went into a prison with him in Arizona. Um, I, I've seen him speak. I, I've, I've met men that he's sponsored, and, and, uh, and I see what he does in his locality. Um, he's a soldier of Cocaine Anonymous and uh, um, someone special. Um, I'm going to let him tell you about himself. Uh, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce to you our closing speaker, Eric O. from Arizona. My name's Eric. I'm a drug addict. Man, it is so cool to be here. Who am I kidding? <laughs> when did I ever use a glass? Uh, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, uh, for helping me to fall in love with Cocaine Anonymous all over again. In the States, we uh, obviously the birthplace of Cocaine Anonymous, it's big, you know? It's big and it's old and there are a lot of people. It's not uncommon for me to go to one of my home groups uh, and, uh, and see somebody pick up a 30-year chip in Cocaine Anonymous, 40-year chip in Cocaine Anonymous, right? Um, but uh, man, do you guys have a lot of passion. You know what I mean? The passion and the unity and the love that you guys carry is just absolutely melted my heart, man. So I just want to thank you for letting me be here. Thank you to the committee. Thank you, uh, everyone who's shown me so much graciousness and kindness. Uh, so many faces that I've known from other places and seen here again. Thank you, Russell and Maria, for putting me up in your home and feeding me uh, a home-cooked meal. Um, Ricky for the humor, my good friend Sam that I get to cross paths with from the other side of the planet, uh, running into Howard and Jackie and Philip, just so many people, right? And I, I've left a ton of people out now, right? But um, thank you so much, you know, just for all for Lulu, for all the love and uh, for just reminding me of what it is we do, you know? Um, I've talked to so many new best friends here, right? And uh, you know, it's like, I didn't know what I was coming into. Yeah, but you have no idea where your wife flew five and a half thousand miles to come. You know, I have no idea what I'm walking into, right? And, and I get here, and um, within, you know, my first two days here, um, I've heard four people say this guy Richard saved a life, right? And, uh, and then he shares and uh, reads Schumacher, man, you know? Um, and I knew I was home, right? Uh, Schumacher's the man. Schumacher also said, along with Stand by the Door, the beautiful poem that Richard read last night, Schumacher said, he said, to those God would use, he simply reduces to nothing. Anybody relate? <laughs> right? And, uh, and I knew I was home, you know? 
Um, I knew I knew I was in Cocaine Anonymous, man. Cocaine Anonymous uh, for the. Can I see? I'm just curious, right? I'm just curious. Who here is in their first year? If you wouldn't mind, just raise your hand. Oof. Cocaine Anonymous is alive and well in England. For those of you that are new that don't quite know what's happening here, um, in case you missed it, right? Cocaine Anonymous is in the business of miracles. That's what happens here, you know? Cocaine Anonymous is in the business of miracles. And, and to be maybe a little more exact, Cocaine Anonymous is in the business of refurbishing disposable people, right? <laughs> That you, you guys told me that there was no such thing as disposable people. There was no such thing as disposable people. And I was absolutely sure I was a disposable person when I got here. You know? Um, and maybe some of you are. And if that's where you're at, welcome home. Welcome to um, the refugee camp uh, of the soul, right? I mean, we're the people who have been orphaned by our families, who've been ostracized and alienated, and uh, when we wander through these doors as refugees, right? Welcome to the sacred, insane asylum of Cocaine Anonymous. <laughs> I hope that you find half the home I have here. Um, I heard in a meeting years ago when I, when I walked in the doors, you could still smoke in Cocaine Anonymous. I was in some grimy meeting. You know, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, which is like the American desert, and it's hot and dry, you know. And I'm sitting in some grimy little meeting, and I'm just chain-smoking. I heard a guy say, he said, uh, he said, I live, I'm sober, and I live a life better than anything I could ever dream, right? And I'm, 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 I'm 30 days sober, and I'm sitting in some sh shitty little meeting, right? And, and I thought to myself, man, you are a shitty dreamer, buddy, you know? <laughs> But that's just not the case, right? Um, what I didn't see, what I couldn't see from my 30 days of where I was at um, was that the dream that he was talking about, the dream that was impossible for him to dream, wasn't something that can be seen. You know? It wasn't something that can be seen with the eyes, right? It's only something that can be felt with the soul, right? And the dream, the, the life I get to live today, that's something I could have never dreamed, is that in here... Where I live, it's calm, you know? And in here where I live, it's quiet. And that's unthinkable for a guy like me. It is absolutely unthinkable for a guy like me, right? And you guys gave me that life, so I owe you my life, you know? Um, I was coming through Heathrow, and I got to the U.K. border, right, where they do the little passport, ch you know? And, uh, and I get there, and it's a long line, and, and, uh, and my heart goes out to... All the people of Brussels and Paris and everything that's happening in the world. Um, but the line was big, maybe as a result of that. Maybe it's like that all the time. I couldn't tell you. Um, but I get to the little checkpoint, and the little guy checking passports. He looks at my passport. He looks at me, and he goes, uh, he goes, why are you here? And uh, I should have just said I'm visiting, you know, a thousand new BFFs, right? <laughs> I should have kept it fucking simple, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm out of my element. You know, I just, I just have, I'm the closing speaker of a convention, you know? And he goes, he goes, what convention? 
And I said, Cocaine Anonymous, man, you know? And he looked at me like I had two heads, and he said, What? I said, A Cocaine Anonymous convention, you know? And then he just totally fucked me up, right? He said, uh, He said, What qualifies you to be the closing speaker at a Cocaine Anonymous? <laughs> Which is not a question you ever ask yourself, right? In fact, I go to great lengths to never ask myself that question. Um, and I knew for sure in that moment that if I told him the truth, he would not understand. You know? That in this setting, that there's, there's nothing I can say to this man that will, you know? Well, I, bur I burnt my life to the ground, and there was a lot of overdoses and a SWAT team and you know, some incarcerations, and, you know, my mother was pissed at me for half my life, and I was angry at her for having me. Uh, and uh, that wouldn't fly very... So I, I just... I just said, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm 10 years sober, right? And he goes... He just looked at me like I had the fucking plague. <laughs> as, though, as though whatever I had were contagious. And uh, stamped my passport and waved me through, right? Uh, but I know, and you know, I know, that what qualifies me for this is grace. Right? And nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. I'm not qualified to this. I'm not qualified to do anything that happens in my life. I'm not qualified to live the life I live, right? Um, I, 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 live, I live the life of a dead man's dream, you know? And uh, I'm not qualified to look the people I love in the eye, tell them the truth, make a promise, and keep it. I'm not, pro I'm not, I'm not qualified to make it to work on time. I'm not qualified uh, to be lovable. Um, I'm not qualified for any of that shit, you know? Uh, I live the life I live by grace and grace alone, you know? And as, as, as we all do, right? And that, and that in that grace, um, there is just a very thin veil of grace that stands between me and an all-out war at any given moment, right? And, uh, and I love you guys for allowing me to be here and for um, the experience, right? So what I love about Cocaine Anonymous is, um, is the experiential nature of the spiritual life, right? The experiential nature of what happens here. Um, that we come here... And we give ourselves to this thing, and if you walked in on Friday and you gave yourself to this thing and have been a part of this thing throughout, you cannot leave here unchanged. You cannot leave here unchanged. And I won't either. And, uh, and I love that, right? And that's what happened in the steps, and that's what happens in Cocaine Anonymous, and that's, that's what we do here, the experiential nature. That, uh, what, I, what I love, one of the things I fell in love with with you guys is that you guys understand that Cocaine Anonymous is a verb, not a noun, right? You guys understand that this isn't a thing we are or a place we go, it's a thing we do, you know? And that only by a series of actions will it bring about the necessary experience to keep me from robbing somebody for another hit of dope tomorrow, you know? And uh, I don't know, I, I guess before I carry on too long, I should tell you something about myself because that's what we do, right? So, uh, like I said, man, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, right, which is uh, just south of the Mexican border and just a little ways from Los Angeles. Um, it's a major hub for uh, m the import of uh, 
narcotics that flow into the United States through Mexico, right? And, um, and I, I took great advantage of that throughout most of my life. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, that's where I'm from. It's hot, it's dry, it's sunny, it's the exact opposite of everything that you have here, so I'm really, <laughs> I'm really appreciating this weather, believe it or not, right? I was 95 when I jumped on an airplane. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, man, I had an average American childhood, right? Like I had an average American childhood. And what I mean by that is my father left my mom before I was born. My mom married my stepdad when I was three and a half. He was a drunk and he was abusive. Uh, he did uh, a lot of things I didn't understand, you know. Shot the family dog with a shotgun once because he didn't do what he wanted to. Um, he would invite the neighbor foster kids over that I would have fist fights with. Uh, and if I didn't do what I was supposed to do or what he wanted me to do, he would invite the foster kids over to help him work on the family car and pay him. Uh, which I didn't understand, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that went down in my life, right? But I don't believe that that's what made me a drug addict. I don't believe that at all, right? And I don't say any of that stuff to get your sympathy. It's just my story, right? Um, and what I know about my story is it doesn't have to own me today. I am not the story. I'm not the story. I'm not the collection of events that happened in my life, right? Um, and that as a result of Cocaine Anonymous, I have found the means to transcend the broken story, right? Um, but the thing that you know, made me a drug addict uh, wasn't the events that happened, right? The thing that made me a drug addict is that somewhere in Sunny Slope, Arizona, uh, a sperm hit an egg once, and uh, a drug addict became, you know? And I need look no further than that, right? That um, the circumstances of my life might have exacerbated the situation, might have fueled the fire, but they didn't create it, right? I believe that I was born a drug addict, you know? And why I believe that is that um, my first conscious thoughts and memories of being on planet Earth with you wonderful people is of feeling alone, you know? My first conscious memories, thoughts, feelings, I think before I could walk or talk or crawl, um, were of being in the presence of my own mother, who I know loved me very much, and um, feeling infinitely alone. You know, like infinitely alone. Not like I was born with this sense of loneliness inside of me, but that I was born into a bottomless, endless, lonely world. And I was just a small, immeasurable speck inside of it. You know, and that was the feeling that lived inside of me from day one. And that's the feeling I still work with today, right? It's the reason I'm a meditator. It's the reason I'm a member of Cocaine Anonymous. It's the reason... Um, I endlessly give my life to service and live the way that I do today, right? Because that's still there, you know? That's still there, and, um, and it must be treated, right? But I didn't know that, right? I didn't know that when I was a kid. I didn't know that growing up, you know? Um, so I white-knuckled childhood as best I can, you know? I don't know how it started with you guys, you know? I, uh, like I said, I, 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 my father left my mom before I was born. My stepdad was kind of drunk, a little violent. Um, and uh, my, I failed kindergarten, right? I don't know. Do you guys have kindergarten? It's just like the first grade of school, right? Like I failed that son of a bitch. And, uh, and uh, I don't know why. I, I think I had just untreated alcoholism, you know? <laughs> I, um, I was hit by a car. 
had three concussions, went temporarily blind, uh, gave myself my first tattoo in the sixth grade, um, trying to impress a girl that was not impressed. <laughs> it wouldn't be the last unimpressed girl or the last tattoo, but that's what happened. And, uh, you know, man, I don't know how you guys got started. I got started with the booze and the pills and the weed and the codeine syrup and huffing gas like most 11-year-olds. And uh, it was just like all uphill from there, right? Um, you know, I don't find anything that super relevant about that, you know? Um, I held out as long as I could, and, you know, it's like, I think I was born a seeker, you know? I was, I was born looking for something I didn't have from day one, right? And, uh, and it was just the next thing to happen, you know? Um, there's a guy named Rumi who said, Rumi said, uh, he said, lovers don't one day meet each other. They were in each other all along. Right? And, uh, and that was my relationship to a bottle and a bag, you know? It was like this thing that had been inside of me since the beginning of time, just waiting for the key to unlock it and let it out, right? And, uh, and my experience with getting loaded was that um, it was, pardon the analogy, it was like a ba newborn baby to the breast, right? You didn't have to teach me anything. We didn't need to understand it. There was no explanation necessary. Um, it felt natural and it felt perfect from day one, right? And that was my experience getting loaded, right? Um, I hear a lot of people say in meetings a lot of things I don't necessarily identify with. doesn't make them right or me wrong or vice versa. I hear, I hear people talk about the first time they get loaded and it's like, I got high, and I, every, the universe made sense for once, right? And it eventually happened, but that's not my first experience, right? Um, first time I got loaded, I, I, I drank a blackout, um, came to with, like, vomit holding my eyes shut and, uh, you know, smelling like um, vodka and vomit, and uh, swore to God it was the coolest thing that ever happened in my life to that point, and then I would do it again next time I had a chance, right? Um, I, uh, I remember being in my very best friend, uh, Rodney Hindi's older brother's room. We got into the top dresser drawer. Uh, he pulls out this cigarette cellophane with this green stuff in it. We put it in a pipe and smoked it. I got a really bad headache, passed out on the floor. Um, later came to realize we smoked a whole bag of seeds. And, uh, um, and I was absolutely positive. That was the coolest thing that happened in my life up to that point, right? And, um, you know, and that, that was just it. It was just one thing, you know. None of those are relevant. It's just what happened, right? Um, I heard a guy once say in a meeting, oh God, so, like some things I just don't get, right? I heard a guy once say in a meeting, he said, my best day sober is better than my worst day loaded. I thought to myself, man, you fucking missed it, buddy. <laughs> like you really blew it bad, you know? And... Uh, I had some great times getting loaded. It, was, it wasn't all bad times, right? The rule of thumb is that if, if a bottle in a bag didn't give so much to me, there's no way it could have taken so much from me, right? And uh, I had some incredible times getting loaded, you know? I remember, I remember being down in Mexico, and, uh, you know, Mexico's a great place, right? Mexico's like, I don't know what the, the equivalent of that is, maybe Amsterdam. Uh, <clears throat> only far less civilized you can buy the cops there, you know? And, um, and uh, I was in and out of the pharmacies and popping pills, and, you know, everybody had handfuls of pharmaceuticals, and we were just, you know, it's like tossing them into each other's face, and I have no idea what's happening, you know, it's just like, and 
uh, you know, pop first, ask questions later, and I'd gotten this big bag of really bad Mexican cocaine and was just shoveling that into my nose as fast as I could. And um, I'd gotten this really bad bag of Mexican pot from like a guy with literally from a, I think he had a donkey. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, was like, it was like black, right? And I was just smoking this stuff. And, uh, and I'd been drinking uh, tequila and Dos Equis all day, just, just hammering it, right? And just having a good time. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember um, the sun starting to set. And, uh, and I remember my buddy gave me this acid. It was on sweet tarts, right? The best stuff I ever had. And... Uh, and I, t- and I popped this acid, and the sun's going down, and this girl, Kara, big blue eyes, blonde hair, I, I loved her to death. And, uh, and I remember being in my tent, and the sun goes down, and we're in my tent, and I'm, the acid's starting to catch up with me, right? And it's just like everything's sort of electric, you know? And, uh, and we're fooling around, and clothes start to come off, and I hear she goes, like this rumble inside of her, right? And she goes, hold on, and she like throws herself towards the tent door, flings the zipper open, pops her head out the tent. Now it's a full moon, right? And the, the tent's on the beach, you know what I mean? It's a full moon, and I could see, like, the full moon, like, reflection off the waves as they rolled in. And she pokes her little head out and projectile vomits, man, right out of the tent. <laughs> right? And you get everybody, anybody ever drink Goldschlager? It's got these little gold flakes in it, right? And, uh, and so she projectile vomits this gold slogger out the tent door, and, and I could see through the moonlight <laughs> these like, gold flakes, these tracers just spewing out of her face, right? It was like, it was, she was magical, you know? <laughs> and I remember I said, I, I, I love you. And uh, we were totally in love till the next day. I mean, that's, that's all I had in me at the time. But, um, you know, I had some times get loaded, man, and I know that you did too, right? I had some times get loaded that if the universe were to recreate itself a thousand more times, wouldn't create those circumstances, you know? Um, that uh, when getting loaded worked for me, it made me a better man, you know? When getting loaded worked for me, it made me a better man. Right? I was able to ask her out. I was able to go for that job. I was able to dream without barriers. I was able to be a better man. The fear just fell off. Right? And it was just me and you. And I was here. And I was present. And when, when being loaded worked for me, it made me a better human being. Right? Um, but the unfortunate reality and the unfortunate predicament of people like myself is that I bought into a lie and the truth came back to beat the shit out of me one day. And... Uh, and that's the way it went down, right? So, you know, I don't know. This the story of what happened in the middle of, like, where it started and where it ended. I just don't think it's that relevant, man. You know what I mean? It's what we tell and it's my story and, you know, it's how we identify. Uh, but I always, I get jammed up on, like, you know, I mean, there was 23 years of being loaded. There's no chance I'm going to tell you all the stories, nor do we need to hear them from this podium today, right? Like, what's relevant? I don't know. You know, was it the overdose? Was it, you know, the SWAT team that drug me out of my house? Is that important? Is it the... Canine unit that tore my car apart? Is it the, you know, walk backwards to my voice at gunpoint? Was it the time I let that poor girl down or maybe all of them? Um, you know, was it the evictions? Was it, uh, you know, being thrown out of school or being invited to leave another job? Or, uh, you know, I, I don't know, right? I don't know what's relevant. Um, here's what I, 
this, the, the gist of it, right? So I, I, get invited to, I, I get invited to leave high school three semesters in a row um, for not showing up. And uh, I leave there. I start a little. I go into uh, college really young because uh, I've you know, been invited to leave high school. And, uh, and I went into college. I, I, I did pretty well there because they didn't care if I was loaded. And uh, I have vague recollections. I hardly remember it, but I, I know it happened. I'm still paying for it. Um, and I started a business. Um, that's a relevant story, right? I start this, but I come out of school. Um, I do artwork for a living commercial art. And um, I start this little business. It was the beginning of uh, this big swell that happened in the U.S. in the music industry in the 90s. And, uh, and I start doing artwork for a band and uh, for another buddy's band. And to get some recognition and then some promoters and labels. And it started, you know... And, uh, and I don't know what you call it here. I'm sure that you have the same thing. In America, we call it the American dream, right? And I was lied to is what that was, right? I was, I was absolutely lied to by everybody I ever knew, right? Um, and they told me this. They said, if you work hard and you know the right things and you know the right people and you get the right job, car, bank account, girlfriends, so on and so forth, you'll be happy. Anybody else hustled that lie? All right. Um, so what happened was by the time I was 24 years old, I owned my own warehouse, a few thousand dollars worth of equipment in the back, a um, couple guys running it, a couple guys in the front doing sales. I'm running around with uh, childhood heroes and famous people, uh, people you would recognize if I told you I'm not into name dropping from the podium, it doesn't really matter. Um, big rock bands, right? And, and there's limousines and there's backstage passes and there's, you know, all the stuff, right? Um, there's, and, only, and I don't say that to impress you because I don't think it's that cool. It, it was everything that my childhood dream told me would make me happy. That's what's relevant about it, right? It was everything that my childhood dream told me would make me happy. And I would come to on the f cold, hard concrete of my own warehouse in a pile of my own drool, incredibly disgusted that I wasn't dead yet. And that's alcoholism. You know what I mean? Um, that's the cruel nature of alcoholism, right? I think for lots of people that works. I think for lots of people, you get you know you get all the stuff, and you know for people like you, and you, you got some credibility and a job and a little money and a car, and you're happy. I think that works for people, right? It's never worked for me, right? What I learned in that lesson is that nothing I can see, touch, taste, smell. Um, own, beg, borrow, steal will ever fix what's broken inside of me, right? Nothing will ever fix what's broken inside of me that I can grasp, right? What I learned in that space is that what I have is an infinite problem, right? I have an infinite problem. And what I mean by an infinite problem is this, that let's say a cargo truck pulled up in front of the Hilton here today, right? And they pop the back of the cargo truck open. And then the cargo truck's just stacked top to bottom, front to back, side to side, heroin, speed, cocaine, and Tennessee whiskey, because that's what I like. And uh, the first thought, we would first reaction when we saw that would be like, oh, fuck, yes. <laughs> right? The second reaction would be, shit, we're going to run out. <laughs> right? 
If that amuses you, if that tickles you in a strange way, that's because you also have an infinite problem. My mom would not think that was funny. At all. She would not find the humor in that. And maybe yours wouldn't either. And so I've got this infinite problem inside of me, right? And no amount, no, no amount of a finite anything will solve it for me, right? If the English Channel were Tennessee whiskey, it would never be enough, right? Um, if uh, you, you follow where I'm going with that, right? There, there just isn't enough to fix what's empty and broken inside of here, right? And uh, I sell off the business. I moved to uh, Orange County, California, just south of Los Angeles. I figured maybe the ocean will solve it. I don't know, you know. Um, that, uh, you know, Surf City, USA. And, uh, and what I found there was um, I'd left Arizona because um, she was lame. And, uh, and they were not great. You know, they were assholes. And the sheriff sucks. And I'm in and out of jail. And, um, and I moved to California. And what happens is all the people I had ran from I recreated in my life. You know what I mean? And I learned another valuable lesson that I think it's you, right? You're the problem. You're the you, you, you. I didn't realize that I had handpicked everybody in my life to fulfill a need for me, right? And then until I change, I will continue to handpick those people over and over and over again, right? And I moved back to Arizona because I realized California doesn't have any solutions for me. And, uh, and I probably would have gone well, but it took me with me, you know, the old cliche, um, and it was, I burned it to the ground there as well. Um, I moved back to Arizona. You know what I mean? It's just like I came here, I went there, you, bleh, you know. Um, so here's where it ends up, right? Because I'd like to talk about being sober. Um, where it ends up. 34 years old, I'm living in a car, which wasn't a bad car, but it made a terrible house. And uh, my driver's license had been suspended for 17 years straight through. Um, so I had no business being in a car. Um, and my suspended driver's license was old enough to drive. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I hadn't paid taxes in about 15 years. Um, you know, paying taxes in April and hoping to die by tomorrow are two totally conflicting philosophies. And uh, Uncle Sam never wins. And um, I hadn't had a bank account in about 10 years, deposited a few too many empty envelopes, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the banking institutions seem to blacklist you for that kind of nefarious activity. Uh, and uh, I was unemployable, you know? And I don't mean like the economy's bad. I mean like I'm unemployable, right? Like I'm a very, very sick human being. I, uh, I weigh about 40 less pounds than I weigh now. I'm kind of a bluish, yellowish color. You can see what's happening under my skin, through my skin, right? Um, I don't go outside during the daytime much. I have warrants for my arrest and I'm on the run from the cops. Um, I, uh, I regularly lose arguments with myself out loud in front of perfect strangers. And, uh, and I'm so broken. I'm so broken, you know? Um, everybody decent in my life had walked out. And the ones who didn't walk out, I was too ashamed to show face to, you know? And, uh, and I was so alone, I can't describe it to you, you know? so incredibly broken and so alone that only you guys understand that kind of loneliness, you know? 
um, that there just wasn't one single person in my life. Not one human relationship, right? And, uh, and my life had gotten really, 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 really small. Right. My name wasn't on any documents. I had no keys to anything other than the car I was in. Um, I had no connections to anything. Right. Just very underground. Right. Very underground. Very inhuman. And one of you wonderful people rolled up on me. I didn't come looking for Cocaine Anonymous. Um, the idea of you could get sober was not an appealing idea to me. Right. I don't know if it's an appealing idea to you, but it wasn't to me. Um, and one of you wonderful people came up to me and said. I didn't have to live or die this way, that there was a way out. And uh, I had never heard that before, right? And, uh, and he said, you could get sober if you want. And um, I remember exactly what I said. Um, I said, I, I really appreciate that. I'm very busy. I got to go. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, I mean, my problem isn't a bottle in a bag. You know what I mean? My problem is not a bottle in a bag, right? My problem is that I have the disease of addiction. I have alcoholism, right? Um, you know, it's like, my, it's like my mom asked me once, you know? She said, she said, you don't seem like a really dumb guy entirely, you know? How is it you've been incarcerated 23 times? Can you help me understand that? And I said, well, Ma, I said, the next time you go swimming, go underwater and hold your breath. When you run out of oxygen, don't come up right away. And when this overwhelming sense of urgent fear and panic overwhelm you, they tell you you might actually die if you don't get another gasp of oxygen. No, that's what it feels like when I need another hit. You know? And uh, she looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> and I knew I was. I knew I was. Anybody have a big book in this room? I know it's an absurd question. If you're new and it hasn't been introduced to you, which I doubt that's the case because you folks are on fire, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't say that to be condescending or arrogant or that I know something you don't. Um, I simply say that is the most compassionate, loving thing I could possibly share with you. That this book tells me everything I need to know about me, right? They wrote this book about me long before I was born, right? In this book, it says, it says that the main aspect of the disease of alcoholism centers in my mind. If what I have is a disease and it centers in my mind, what does that mean? It means I have a mental illness, Right? If that's a new idea to you, just breathe that in. Right? What else is that? What else is that? What else is the experience of feeling like I'm suddenly suffocating for another hit of something that's ruining the life of everyone I know, including myself? What is that? Right? I mean, the experience of feeling like I'm drowning... While driving, just, just driving home from work. You know? Just sitting at Christmas dinner. Just suddenly, I feel like a plastic bag's been put over my head from behind. Just, you know? What is that, right? So, I don't know if, you guys, if it means anything to you. There's a woman named Nancy Reagan uh, who uh, 
died last week in the U.S. Nancy Reagan was the woman who coined the term, just say no. <laughs> Lovely woman, rest in peace. I mean that sincerely. Uh, so, the idea that I would just say no, right? The idea, it's like, that's like asking a schizophrenic person to please stop hearing voices. You with me? It's the same. It's humorous, but it's the same. Asking me to not have a knee-jerk compulsion to burn my life to the ground behind another head is the exact same as asking just not have the just hey, just stop having that obsession that you didn't ask for. You know, um, is the same as asking a schizophrenic person, hey, buddy, you'd just be you'd be so much happier if you'd stop hearing those voices, right? Asking a, a, a person with chronic depression, you would be so much happier if you would just smile, buddy, right? <laughs> I think he would if he could, you know? And what I have to understand about that is that, is that no one will understand this disease but me. I can't expect my poor mother to grasp the disease any more than I understand what it's like to have schizophrenia. I can have empathy for them, I can have compassion, I can try to imagine and conceptualize what that might be like, but I will never understand what it's like to be dry, trying to simply buy a bottle of water at a store and have a transaction with the cashier and three other voices in my head talking to me at the same time. I will never understand that. And my mother will never understand what it means to have the obsession for just one more. Right? And so we can't expect non-addicts to do what we do, right? The rest of the world's having a war on drugs, right? Which is, which is taking a toll in people. We're having a war on addiction because we know it's not the people. That's the difference between us and them. That's why we are the only ones qualified to help, right? which is why this fellowship here with you guys is growing so incredibly well, right? Um, and and wh why I'm in love with this thing, right? So, so the guy tells me I can get out, tells me there's a way out, I don't have to die this way, what do you think? And I said, man, you know, he says you can get sober, I said, I'm really busy, I gotta go. And, um, and he says, uh, okay, and, and I know he prayed for me. And how I know that is that within 24 hours, uh, I was uh, hemmed up in a hardware store for borrowing some things I wasn't gonna return. And um, taken down to our local county jail one more time on um, a probation violation for possession of heroin and um, booked on petty theft. And while upon my arrival in the jail, they charged me with a felony, too, for distributing methamphetamines inside the jail that day, uh, which is really unfortunate. And, um, and they, uh, they started to look at the record, you know, which had things like, Aggravated assault and criminal damage and discharging firearms and city limits and aggravated DUI. All the, a lot of misunderstandings, really. Uh, um, I hope when I say that that you don't think it's tough guy stuff because it's not, right? Like my, my man Ricky over here was talking about, like I was telling him about some SWAT team and he was like, oh, I've been watching that on television since I was a kid, you know? And I was just like, man, stop watching television, you know? Like that's not, that's not real, right? Um, that, uh, what's not shown on television is that every arrest I ever had was another humiliating mile marker that absolutely confirmed that I was never going to have a good life. 
You know what I mean? Um, that when that SWAT team came to drag me out of my home, when that chopper was over my apartment, and the mobile command unit and the squad cars and the little dudes in turtle suits with automatic weapons hiding behind my neighbor's cars and door stoops, and they dragged me out of my home and left, um, that left an indelible mark in that neighborhood, you know, of mothers that absolutely knew it was no longer safe to let your kid out after dark. And I was responsible for that. You know what I mean? Um, of, uh, of children who were absolutely terrified, right? And, uh, and I did that, you know? And that's what you don't see on television. And, uh, and that's what happened behind every arrest I ever had, right? And I come to in this jail on the day after. So I got arrested the day after Christmas. And I'll tell you what grace means to me. How am I doing on time, Russell? Okay. I, I, I come to, I, I was arrested the day after Christmas in 2005. And what grace means to me is, uh, is I come to in January. And I don't remember kicking. I don't remember sweating. I don't remember, I don't remember anything, right? And, uh, and at the time, I was, I, was, I was physically addicted to speed, heroin, whiskey, and benzos, Right? And I don't know what that kick was about, but it would have been real hard had I remembered anything about it. Um, and I don't, right? And I came to in January, and there was this voice coming from the middle of my being. And, uh, and it was as clear as day. And, uh, and for the last decade of my life, I had been trying to die. And I don't mean that to depress you. I don't think I was suicidal. It was just a very logical conclusion to where I was at in life, you know? Um, that I had watched every dream I ever had Gasparera and drowned in front of me behind that obsession. And, uh, and my life had become so hopeless and the people I had harmed had become so great and the amount of debt and damage that it would take to ever have a normal life was so great that checking out was just a logical conclusion. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I came to in this jail and there was this voice coming from the middle of me and it said, dude, if you're not going to die, you better figure out how to live, because this sucks, you know? And, uh, and then there was this other voice that seemed to follow it, right? And I remembered what the dude had said, what the guy, he told me that there was a way out, told me I could get sober if I wanted. And I knew in that moment that getting sober wasn't the problem. The problem is what's left when the bottle and the bag are gone, right? that broken, infinite sense of loneliness that haunts me through my life, right? Can you do something with that? Can you do something with the obsession that always starts the nightmare, right? Because if we can't work on those things, I got nothing, you know? And, uh, and I knew for sure that if I was to ever have a good life, um, that something was going to have to be made of the damage that had happened, right? Of the father I'd never met, of the stepdad that was drunk and violent, of the daughter I'd raised that I found out in a DNA test in court wasn't mine, of uh, the people I'd harmed, of all of the brokenness of my life. Something was going to have to happen with that, or I was never going to survive, right? And, uh, and I had this, like, moment of clarity that said, if I was going to get sober, I needed to make right my past. You know, and I had this like reality check moment that I had I, I realized that I had like in here, I had been waiting my whole life for everybody who ever harmed me to get in single file line and come apologize to me one by one. 
And the moment that I had was this, was that the sons of bitches aren't coming, right? And if, I, if I'm ever to be well, if that's ever to be made right, I'm going to have to own it. If I'm waiting for you to fix it for me, I'm a dead man. And I have no power in that situation, right? And um, so, I, you know, I called, I, I called the guy and he said, man, if you could get out of jail, come find me. And uh, I, had, I called this girl. I would, I'd love to say she was my girlfriend, but that would be a gross exaggeration of terms. Uh, she, we ran and had hateful sex once in a while. And, um, <laughs> that's real. And uh, I asked her if she could get my car and put it up for bail, and um, she does. It takes her like a week and a half. Um, she was tweaking real bad. I think she had to alphabetize the papers in the glove box or polish the wheels or I'm not sure what. Uh, but I finally get out, and I made it through the front doors of Cocaine Anonymous on Friday the 13th, January of 2006. <laughs> There was a full moon outside. Uh, it was 11.30 at night, and I met you people. And, uh, and I'll tell you that I fell in love with you guys the day we met. I absolutely fell in love with you the day we met, right? Um, I knew for sure the day we met uh, that we vibrated on the same wavelength, you know? Um, they say the eyes are the seat of the soul, and I could see right into you, right? And I knew that you had been where I had been and done what I'd done and felt how I felt and thought how I thought and that you weren't there now and that you weren't high and I didn't understand it. And it was real magic to me, you know? It was very real magic to me and I did not understand it, right? And you guys introduced me to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you say, here's a big book and you should, here's the book, right? And I looked at the book and... As you can imagine, I wasn't much of a book guy at the time, and uh, I thought, that's a cute book. Um, I'm on my way to prison. Uh, I'm hoping for something more practical, <laughs> right? And you guys, that's great. We've got this book, and uh, I was like, that's nice. I mean, the only person that hates me more than my mother is me. Uh, you guys said, that's great. We've got this book. <laughs> And uh, it didn't seem to matter what I came at you with. You just reminded me that you had the book. <laughs> and, um, and you told me that the magic that you had came from your weird blue book, right? And, uh, and I knew that what you had wasn't something I could steal from you. Right? I mean, that had worked in most areas of my life, but it wasn't going to work here. And, uh, and so I got, your weird, well, I got your weird blue book, and, uh, and I started in at the steps, right? Now, the first time I ever saw these steps, I looked at them, and uh, it, was just, it was like two, was like 12 weird magic tricks, right? It's like, I understood. They all made sense to me up until number two, and then, <laughs> and then we like parted ways, you know? Um, but I knew for sure that although I didn't understand them, the first time I read them, I knew for sure that every one of them was something I needed to do. I deeply, in a space beyond words, knew that, that every single one of them was something that I personally needed to do, right? And, uh, and I didn't know why, and I wasn't even sure how that would help me with my problems. But you guys assured me it would. And so I started at 1 and I went to 12, right? And, uh, 
there's a chapter in this book called We Agnostics, right? Now, I want to tell you that asking me to share in England, uh, maybe a couple hundred miles from where they wrote the book of James on Easter is somewhat intimidating for an American. Um, I don't know if that means anything to you, but it's intimidating as hell to me, somewhat. Uh, but there's a, there's a chapter in this book called We Agnostics, right? And, uh, and I love that they called the chapter that. We could call all of this We Agnostics, right? All of this, right? And why that makes sense to me is this, that there are maybe, we could probably break it down further, but there are maybe three stages of believer, right? There's the atheist says God doesn't exist. There's the believer says God absolutely exists. And then there's the atheist, or I'm sorry, the agnostic, which simply says, maybe, but I have no proof, right? Um, And that was me. And that's maybe all of us, right? I think even the believers get there sometimes, right? I think even the believers are agnostic agnostic sometimes. And I think even the atheists are agnostic sometimes, right? Which is to say, maybe, but I got no proof, right? And what happened between 1 and 12 was um, magic, you know? I can't tell you when or what day, but I started at 1 and I went to 12 and somewhere in the middle... That obsession that haunted my entire life just went away. Just went away. And it hasn't been back in 3,807 or eight days, you know? Uh, and that's magic, right? And if you're new, that's it, right? We come here and we go, you know, we tell people... New guy, we tell new people the lamest shit sometimes, you know. It's, don't leave before the miracle, right? It's like, you know, have you been sober all day? Yeah. Do you have the obsession you use? No. Okay, you have, the miracle's here, you know what I mean? You need to wait no longer, you know. Um, we just set people up for like, you know, they walk and wander around the rooms and go, well, where's my burning bush, right? And it's just like, buddy, you got it. Go give it to somebody, you know. And... Uh, Somewhere between 1 and 12, the magic happened. The obsession went away. And somewhere in there, what also happened was we changed. You changed, right? I took the steps and you changed. It was the weirdest shit ever. (laughs) Right? And uh, and the town that I grew up in, that I'm a fifth-generation native to, that I swore to God I hated, and if I ever had the chance, I would burn it to the ground... um, I didn't hate it, you know? It was all right, right? And I did what I had always done, which is when something works for me, I do it again, you know? I mean, that's sort of how I became a drug addict. Uh, (laughs) And so I started at one, and I went to 12, and we changed again, you know? And uh, and I did what I had always done, which is when something works, I do it again, and I started at one, and I went to 12. I started at one, and I went to 12, and every time, incrementally, we changed until by the time I was three years sober, I'd been through the steps nine times and, uh, and there wasn't anything left to write about. There was nothing left to write about, right? And, uh, and I don't think I had ever seen a sunset before that, you know? I was too, uh, you know, I couldn't see past right here, right? I don't think I had ever really found the value of a sunset, right? Or much else, you know? And that's the magic of this, right? That, that, that 
the, 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 the proof that I have is the experience of my reality, right? The proof that my life is suspended by grace is the fact that in here it's quiet and I have this presence and ability to see the world more clearly, right? And that if we don't do that internal work, this will never change, right? That um, I don't see the world as it is. I see the world as I am. And if I don't change, I will always see the world the same, right? And when I change, the world cannot go unchanged, right? It's, a, it's an inescapable conclusion, right? And, uh, and that's the magic of what's happening here, right? So um, a couple of things I want to do real fast, and then we'll shut her down. So um, there's a story I, I love, right? And I feel like this is the best place to tell it, right? So... It's like 100 miles from here somewhere, I don't know, uh, maybe 1,000 years ago, whatever. Um, there's a guy, and he's, um, he's in a rowboat, and he's, uh, it's foggy, you know, it's the morning, and he's crossing the stream in this rowboat, and, uh, and as he's crossing the stream in this rowboat, he sees another boat coming downstream, and, uh, and he sees the boat, and it's coming towards him, and he says, hello there, I'm crossing the stream, don't hit my boat, right? And the boat doesn't even acknowledge him. Right? Doesn't change course, doesn't say sorry, doesn't, doesn't slow down, nothing, right? Just keeps coming, right? And then he feels it from me. He's like, what? You know? And he doesn't change course either, of course. And, uh, and he keeps rowing, and the boat keeps coming, and it's getting closer, and he yells a little louder, don't hit my boat, you know? And the boat keeps, doesn't change course, doesn't slow down, doesn't acknowledge, just keeps coming, you know? And he's rowing, and he, of course, doesn't change course either, right? And, uh, and he's rowing, and it gets closer, and then, dunk, hits his boat, and he loses his shit, like, ah, right? And, uh, and then it's close now, and he can see through the fog, and the boat's empty, right? And the anger just vanishes, you know? And, uh, and the reason is, is because he saw it wasn't personal, you know? Like what was happening was a personal, right? And what I found in the steps and what I found in that fourth column is that my life wasn't personal. There isn't one thing about my life that was personal, right? My sponsor directed me to go back and find um, that man that I had uh, never met, my father, right? And on the day I decided to go find him, I track him down, and he's on his deathbed, right? And I walk into this home where he lives. I swear to God, he probably would die alone in a cave uh, with a bottle or something, right? That's my idea. And I swear to God, if I ever saw him, I'd stab him in the neck with a rusty screwdriver. And, uh, and I walk into this house, and I walk up alongside of this bed, and I see his hand, and it looked exactly like my hand, only old. I see his face, and it looked exactly like me, only old. And I could see his eyes. There was nobody there. Was Oxycontin, fentanyl, morphine, all, all my favorite things. Uh, but and uh, I see his eyes, and I'd never seen my father's eyes before, you know. And I'd wondered what maybe that was like, right? And the walls started to move in on me, and it started to fade to black, and it started hard to breathe, right? And I knew that the circumstances of my life that brought me to being sober, and the circumstances of my life that brought me to this place, were in divine order, right? And there was a reason I was here. And, uh, 
Uh, you can't really make amends to a man who can't hear you, right? So there was a chest at the end of the bed, and I sat on this chest, and I just stared at this man who I swore to God I would kill if I ever saw him, and uh, who must obviously be a wretched man um, for leaving my mother before I was born. And, uh, and in this home where he was at, he was surrounded by a lot of family members who clearly loved him. And uh, the guy who'd driven me there that day said that he didn't have an enemy in the world, right? He was the nicest man he ever knew. I sat on this chest at the end of this bed, and I just saw it for what it was for the once in my life, right? And here was a man in the most humble state a human being will ever be on his deathbed, right? Just, just seconds from God. And, uh, and I had this moment of awareness that it's not what's happened in my life that's ruined me. It's what I think about what's happened. You follow me? And I had this little moment, and I prayed, and I said, God, thank you for another day sober. I thank you for this miracle. And, uh, and I walked out, and it felt like a backpack full of bricks I'd been carrying my whole life. I just left it right there in the driveway that day. And, uh, and I went home, and it was the first night and I think about a decade that I slept, and I didn't grind my teeth in my sleep. And I got a call the next day that he died after I left. And that's what happened to Cocaine Anonymous, right? I went back, and I found that stepdad, and... Uh, and I made amends to him. It was the first time I seen that tough old guy cry, you know? And he, uh, he made amends to me the best he could. And uh, me and that old guy are, are buddies, you know? And uh, that's what happened in Cocaine Anonymous, right? So um, we come here and we look at these steps and they seem so impractical, right? But they are incredibly practical, right? And how they work is there's a guy named Father Ed Dowling. He was a friend of Bill Wilson's. He was a friend of Chuck C's. And Father Ed Dowling said, the process of spiritual growth is one of subtraction, not addition. Right? It's one of detachment, not attainment. Right? And I got here, and I thought that you were going to give me something. And I was so wrong. Right? What happened was, if you ask me what I got out of the steps, I'll tell you I don't know what I got out of the steps. I'll tell you what I lost. Right? That... It's sort of like this, the process of spiritual growth. This is water. I'm 75% water. You're 75% water. How do you make better water? You don't add more water to water to make better water. You remove what's not pure, and the light gets in, right? And that's what happens here, you know? So what happened was we inventoried the fear and the hatred and anger and we looked at it and we saw the beliefs and the defects and, and, and we let go of it in six and seven and we made a list of people and went back and found them and lost the shame and the guilt in eight and nine. And, uh, and it's not what I gained, uh, but it's what I lost, right? And in the absence of all that brokenness, a good life grew, you know? And that's what happens here. So I would like to try a little experiment and then I'm going to go home. Uh, you guys with me? Yeah. Okay. Just wherever you're sitting or however you are, find a comfortable place to be or uncomfortable. Whatever makes you happy. Close your eyes. Let's just forget about everything that ever happened in your life. You don't need it right now. And just be in this room. Let's forget about everything that's going to happen later. There's plenty of time to think about it. It's temporary, set aside the plans and the fantasies and just be right here, right now. Let's notice 
the light as it comes through our eyelids, the sounds of the people around us, the feelings and experiences inside as a result of being alive in a human body. And just notice the breath as it enters and leaves the body. Relax the brow. Let go of that awful wrinkle. You don't need it. Unclench the jaw. Let the tongue rest in the palate of your mouth. Relax the shoulders. Just let the arms fall from the spine like flags from a pole. Relax the back. Relax the belly. Just let it roll out on the floor. Nobody's looking. Notice your weight on your seat, your feet on the floor. Notice your breath. As your mind attempts to distract you by thought, just bring your awareness back to the experience of breathing. Just notice the breath for a minute. Pay your attention. And notice your breath. Okay, open your eyes. Does that feel different? Feel a little shift? It's because for a brief moment in time, we transcended this broken little thinker and connected to an experience, right? And that's what happens when we do this thing. And the more of the 12-step practice we do, the more that brief second is my life's experience, you know? Um, before I hopped on a plane, I sent out four small money orders for just a couple hundred bucks. It was the last of my financial amends, right? And if you haven't done that, please do. Please do yourself a favor and do that, right? Give them back their money. And, uh, <laughs> right? Um, it was important to me to come here free, you know? And it's important to me to get free. So, um, you know... No, it's a blessed life, man. It's a very, very blessed life, right? And so, you know, if you're new, we got this book. <laughs> and uh, when I got here, I knew for sure that I was a, I was a plagiarist and I was an imposter and, uh, and I was a liar. And I thought for sure that one more time, those would be the things that kept me from having a good life, right? And... Uh, what I didn't know was that those were the necessary ingredients to do this thing, right? Um, that uh, I stole your shit and made it mine. Um, I did what you did, right? And in doing so, I got what you had, right? So I'm incredibly grateful for the life that you've given me. Um, that without you, I don't have this, right? And thank you for allowing me to come here for the last decade and pick your pockets clean. Thank you for my life. Thank you.